Gavin Woods podcast, proudly brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, this is Normie Rowe, and you're listening to my good mate, Gavin Wood, and his podcast. My podcast guest is Australian singer, songwriter, actor, king of pop, one of the nicest guys in the business, born and raised in Northcote in Melbourne. I'm talking about the king of pop himself, Normie Rowe AM. Welcome to the podcast, mate. And a good day to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. You know, I'm, you know I've been a big fan of yours, Norm, for a very long time. I go, I go back to the uptight days. Well, of course you do. I go back to a previous time in radio with you back in Brisbane. Yes, yes, we had a good time back then. Now, now tell me, you've done so much on record, and, and also, too, uh, Douglas Fletcher, Sons and Daughters, Jean Valjean, Les Mis, uh, also the lead in Cyrano de Bergerac, uh, Danny, Warbucks, Danny Warbucks in Annie, Freddie Trumper in Chess, Jean Perron in, a, in Evita. Uh, you know, you, you did the big pop thing for a very, very long time, and then you went to the stage. Well, I, I think you have to keep putting back into whatever you do in life. You know, you keep keep adding more strings to your bow or, as I call them, arrows in the quiver. Right. Uh, and that's the, I think it's really the only way that you can continue doing what you do. I mean, otherwise, if you're not going forward, you're going backwards. That's very true. Now, also, to the King of Pop, they were heady days. You won the King of Pop 1967, 1968, and in the middle of that, the Vietnam War. Well, they were, they were very heady days, but uh, I, I was just one of so many artists who, who saw their careers uh, bloom in those days, you know, through the auspices of shows like The Go Show, Teen Scene, Saturday Date, uh, a bit of the last throws of bandstain and uh you know with all oh, billy thorpe's program it's all happening so the television made a huge difference to exposing wonderful australian talent um and and of course the radio stations then uh, relied on their on-air personalities to choose the material they want, they knew that their audiences would love. Uh, but now, the best time for a DJ, I can tell you. Well, you know, now it's all done by computer, and uh, yeah, and of course, uh, it's doomed to fail because uh, computers don't do any listening. That is so true. Now, also a, a few more awards. You're you're the national ambassador to the variety clubs around Australia, winning the Heart and Soul of Variety Award. You got into the aria hall of fame 2005 was it that long ago oh god that long ago yes yeah <laughs> and then 2009 you became patron of the kidney heart health australia which is a, a also a big one yes and then in 2008 you played prime minister harold holt now this one escaped me because i was in the states tell me about the harold holt movie the producer had done a lot of research on a couple of different public curiosities there were the Chandler murders or the Chandler deaths, as it turned out to be, and whatever happened to the Prime Minister. And the 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 mm. uh, docudrama was uh, the Prime Minister is missing, and uh, they asked me to to play the role of Harold Holt, which was a bit a bit interesting because it was Harold Holt who deemed it necessary to induct. 
Australian pop star Normie Rowe into the Australian yes. Army to try and save his own. Yeah, career. mongrel. And then, <laughs> I ended up in the Army after he lost his life. Yeah. So you enjoyed the film experience? Well, yeah. I, all of these experiences have been uh, very satisfying, especially working with some people whose bent uh, is their whole life is in particular areas. I, direction of theatre, direction of television and movies, producers who pr- have p- produced my my various records over the years. You learn so much working with all these people, you know, and, and you start to understand a lot more of the of the intricacies and the and the the an enormous amount of effort you you have to put into looking after the little things to be able to put the you know the nuts and bolts to be able to put the whole um, thing on the on the stage of the TV show or the or the silver screening. Mm, mm. Now you mentioned Prime Minister Harold Holt, of course, died uh, drowning, and uh, you also mentioned uh, Vietnam. Now I have it on good authority that you weren't actually called up for Vietnam, and you found out later. Well, yeah, it's it's something I don't I don't really enjoy to canvas all that much. The thing is. It is what it is. I, you know, I am now a Vietnam veteran and I can't be changed. Yeah. And I've got a lot of great friends uh, who come out of there. In fact, you know, I've I've got uh, more or less a number of families now. You know, I've got my showbiz family. I've got the rock and roll family as, mm-hmm. a, as a part of a sort of a sub facet of uh, of showbiz. There's the the drama side of show business with people like um, Abigail, who was so incredibly generous when I was doing Sons and Daughters. And then, of course, working in theatre with people like uh, Trevor Nunn. Mm. All those things were great, you know. And, of course, uh, you lead on to that with the, the absolutely uh, an indelible mateship that you get when you're with a group of people uh, and you do a, a specific thing and and then that thing is is fraught with life threatening danger. Uh, it heightens that whole relationship situation. Mm. And, uh, mm. and we had a reunion of my regiment just recently, and it was it was like we were back together again in Vietnam. Gee, yeah, it it it, it it's got to run that deep, hasn't it? Uh, well, I think so. You know, I mean, your your very life depends on it. And I I've got a mate who. You know, I was under fire at one stage. My my APC was right out in the open out as I broke through the jungle and I took a lot of small arms and RPG fire and a whole, whole bunch of other stuff. And my mate Brian brought his vehicle straight through the jungle and stood side by side, um, got, his, got his driver to drop down the hatch and Brian was up there in the turret with the with his twin thirties firing away, and you know when you got a when you got a mate who's prepared to do that, you never let him go. And he's, I was only talking to him yesterday. Funnily enough, we yeah. we we always connect, yeah. uh, and it's uh, it's it's really a special relationship when you have that sort of uh, experience together. Well, you made it a popular war just for in the recruitment area, but then ultimately it became an unpopular war. And, uh, you know, and that's the sad thing about it, isn't it? Well, the sad thing is that, um, you know, the people who were who were fighting the war was were, um, 
were basically led to the blame. They were blamed for it. Mm, um, mm. And, you know, my dad said when, when I came back, he said, the best thing you can do, mate, is just forget you ever went and don't tell anyone. Mm. Or that mm. <laughs> couple of things that, that were impossible for me to do because sure. I lost mates over there. No, yeah. Yeah. Three or four mates were killed. And then how could I? Forget it. I mean, I, I was. I, I'm t- still as fifty yeah. years later. I'm reminded each day. So impossible. Mm. Mm. You're shooting in the jungle one day, and then the next day you're mowing the lawn in Doncaster. You know, it's got to be such a head flip. How much baggage did you bring back with you? Oh, you can't go to a war without bringing baggage back. You know, it's impossible. Um, mm. Especially if you're mm. you're doing stuff that is, uh, you know, life threatening every single day of your, the time you're there from the time you get into the airspace till the time you leave the airspace, your life is threatened, you Mm. know. It's very interesting, Gavin, uh, if people want to get out of their library, uh, an early Australian Vietnam movie starring a plethora of Australian artists, including Graham Kennedy, Mm. uh, called The Odd Angry Shot. Oh, yes. And I was asked to sing the, the theme song, Who Cares Anyway? Um, to do the, in that, but I I found it on YouTube the other day, and I was just have, having a bit of a look at some of the scenes, and I and I didn't when I first saw it, I didn't sort of I, I think I was too close to it, yeah, and and uh, I started to realise that that was exactly what it was like, you know, uh, uh, one day you're there and you, you you're getting you're getting incoming fire and stuff like that or or not or you're out on on an operation wondering whether or not the next time you you uh, when you break through the jungle you you're going to run over a mine or whatever yeah. it might have been for each of us we all had a different experience i guess uh and then you you get on a on a ship or you get on a plane and as in my case and you come back, and I wasn't even supposed to come back when I came back. It was um, the movements uh, section of, of the military uh, made some sort of mistake, and there were 19 seats on a 707 coming back three weeks before we were supposed to return. So, right. um, so I got back just before Christmas, and uh, in '69, and uh, and so when I go, I, I don't even think. My parents knew I was coming back, coming home. Mm, what a surprise uh, when, for them! Yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, mobile phones didn't exist, and no. you know, the internet internet didn't exist, and all that sort of stuff. So it was uh, uh, a, a bigger sort of thing. You get back, and everybody's going about their day to day. Yeah, uh, and you've got a whole bunch of people out there um, fighting, perhaps losing their lives. Um, you know, being wounded and, and being em- emotionally and psychologically scarred. Uh, and then all these, the rest of Australia just trundles off down the road and they go and do their, do their work and they go and have lunch and go to the pub on a Friday night and do all yep. the stuff as if nothing else is going on. There's still some vets who, who haven't come back. You know, it's, uh, you know, they're still finding it hard and uh, hopefully the, uh, you know, the, you've got enough support now. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that we get everybody. That's the main aim, of course, is get every, getting everybody emotionally home. But we sort of figure that, that for some, it's just too hard. Hmm. And the next chore that we have is make sure that whatever happened to us doesn't happen to the young veterans coming back from hmm. from all of the deployments since the Vietnam War. 
you know, because there's there's a great lot of them, and uh, and they are yeah, finding yeah. it just as hard to get back into mainstream society as we ever did. Mm, mm. Well, mate, you're a hero in my in my eyes. I love you to death, and for the sacrifice that you've made for our country. Thank you for your service. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thanks very much. And uh, to all my all my mates, uh, I, I say uh, that's laterally, that's my generation and vertically, the older generation and the new generation. I'd I like to thank you for your service too. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives since 1934. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Hi, this is Normie Rowe, and you're listening to my good mate, Gavin Wood, and his podcast. Let's go right back, shall we? I mentioned Northcote. Uh, let's go back to your first concert, the Lou Tapano Music School. <laughs> and and the Valiance. Tell me all about that in high school. Well, it was there ended up being some quite some notaries in the uh, in the Valiance to be honest. There was Marty Vaneggs, who changed his name later to Marty Christian and was a mm-hmm. pop singer and then then ended up in a couple of other groups, vocal groups and stuff, and, and became one of the lead, lead singers in The New Seekers. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Mel Clark, who was uh, the rhythm guitarist for Tony Worsley in the Blue Jays and later uh, stepped up in the role of bass player for Bulla Makanka who wrote Give Me a Home Amongst the Gum Trees. Fantastic. Uh, and then, of course, there, there was me. I don't know whether it was fame or not, uh, or notoriety, <laughs> whether I was famous or notorious, but um, the three of us uh, did reasonably well in show business. So that's, that was a, a, good, uh, a good effort out of a, a five-member band. I think the, the drummer and uh, the sax player were the only two that never went on with it. Now, were you named after the uh, popular car at the time? No, no. Oh, we, we were named after Prince Valiant of the Prince Valiant, of the days yes. of the Crusades or something or other. Of it was course, a, a story to be told. Oh, that—that's a much better story than being named after a car. <laughs> <laughs> I think we had a we had another name called the Mustangs, but there were about seven hundred bands called the Mustangs at one stage, but the, they. We weren't named after them yeah. either. It was before the Mustang actually came out. So, was Mum and Dad musical? How did you get this this music in you at, at such a young age? Oh, Mum always was always singing around the house, and and she had uh, I don't know nine or ten sisters. Wow! All of whom went to the Maydowns Dancing School, which I believe still exists in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And had it been sliding doors and all that sort of thing, I think at least some of them would have ended up on the boards. Of course, they all had to deal with the their parents' time was First World War, mm. and then then their time was the Depression and the Second World War. So you know there was no to try and survive during that period of time. There was really not an opportunity for uh, flippant vocational pursuits. <laughs> in in those days, you know, I mean, it's a very different ball game these days because, uh, uh, you know, people do understand that show business uh, and the performing arts are a, a true vocation. Right. Yeah. Um, even though Simon Birmingham, Senator Simon Birmingham, 
thinks it's a merely a pastime. Uh, I suppose he's sick and tired of us having a go at politicians. <laughs> well, um, I'll say it. He's a clown, so we'll just put him over there. You know what I thought was hilarious? I, I saw a photo of him and I put a photo of him and Alfred E. Newman from Mad Magazine side by side and they look just like each other. Well, the new Minister for the Arts, he's got a couple of guitars and a fuzz box in his office in Canberra. Good on him. That's what we want to see. So that's good because, you know, the generations are catching up with the pollies, which is great. Yes, yeah. Now, treading the boards and then came a disc jockey. Stan the Man Roof. Yeah, well, it was at that concert you mentioned before, a concert with the Valiants on a truck stage at, at Moomba, at the end of the Moomba procession, and the uh, Lutapano Music School always put these uh, concerts on, and uh, and Stan the Man Roof was the... Uh, uh, was the compere. Heidi, hi, Victoria, and hello. Stan the man, your top rock job. <laughs> what a guy. I love Stan. Stan came up to me after my little bit and said, do you have any aspirations of being a singer? Now, I didn't know what an aspiration was. <laughs> <laughs> I had to look it up later on. And That's funny. I said, I beg your pardon. And pretended the band was too loud that I didn't hear him. And he said, would you like to be a singer? And I said, that's all I want to do. It's the only thing I want to do. So Stan mm. then organised for me to come into 3KZ and he put me on the air. I was a bit dumbstruck. <laughs> mm. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Here I am on 3KZ, my favourite radio station, and opposite Stan Rofe, who was my my God, he was my 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 hero, my mentor. He phoned mum and dad and said, is it okay if I pick Norman up on Saturday and take him to Preston Town Hall? I want to put him on stage there. Now, Preston Town Hall in those days was arguably the best and biggest rock and roll dance in Melbourne and perhaps one of the biggest in Australia. They said, yeah, sure. So he came by, met mum and dad, because I was only, I think I was 13. Hmm. took me on down there and I got on stage and uh, I, I was back by the Thunderbirds and the Thunderbirds just had big hits with Wild Weekend and backing uh, Johnny Chester and of course the Chessmen were on the stage too and John was there. I'm a, I met all these people that I'd only ever heard of on radio or was read about in TV Week or something, you know. Yeah. And it yeah. was it was just just uh, uh, like I said before, uh, the first thing was I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, and then there was something even bigger than heaven <laughs> when I went to Preston yeah. Town Hall, and then I, uh, I became a regular there, and and just it sort of bloomed from that from that time on. But I was I was 13 years old on stage when everybody else was well into their teens, and some of them were into their 20s easily. So, you know, mm. it was a, a quite an experience for a young kid. And uh, you're punching above your weight. Well, I never wanted to do anything else, Gav. You know, I, it's the only yeah. thing that I ever wanted to do was just to, to be a singer. And, and, you know, I've never been scared. A lot of people get really nervous about being out in front of an audience. But I, and to be quite frank, from my own personal point of view, I don't understand it. But then we're not, none of us are the same as somebody else, you know. So, yeah. so, uh, uh, I, I sort of get it. I get that they are nervous, but I'm, you know, I, I've tried to talk a few people through it, but it's it seems to be some sort of 
psychological uh, barrier that they that I think they probably build up or they don't get a chance to break down in their earlier days. I find the young kids are easier to to get to these days. You know, they, they mm, mm. I, I, there's very few young kids who uh, who don't like the opportunity of getting out and, um, you know, doing a little bit of a dance or a, a sing a song, you know, I know all my grandkids have done all that, you know, they, yeah, um, yeah. and their, and their mates. And I never, I never push anybody along to want to be in show business. It's hard enough just being there myself, but, but uh, some people like me have the fire in the belly and it's all they want to do. And that's when I lo- love the opportunity of becoming a mentor for them. Well, you know, you're not going to make a career by winning the voice. You know, you've got to get out and do what you do. You know, you've probably played every stage in Australia, uh, New Zealand and surrounds uh, five times, six times over. Well, the way I see it, you know, show business is the business of show. You know, there are four letters in show and there are eight letters in business. And that's about the ratio of hard work you need to put in. You, just doing all your scales uh, on whatever instrument, if your voice is your instrument as well, learning all the physicality is required to be able to do the job that you've chosen to do. All of those things learn about the, the um, you know, reading of the music, understanding choreography, doing all the things that are necessary for the show. Mm. And you need to do twice as much work on the business side of it which means you have to know a little bit about promotion sales uh you treat it the whole thing like like a business you mm, know mm, mm. um accountancy um business management you have to know a bit about all all of those things because your product is your show mm, mm. and your business is the business you know and and we really need to to emphasize that with kids coming through now, Normie, what a career. You, uh, you really churned them out. 14 albums, 13 EPs, 30 singles, 11 top 10 records in a row, songs, It Ain't Necessarily So, I Who Have Nothing, K Sarah, Sarah, Tell Him I'm Not Home, The Breaking Point, Pride and Joy, Ooh La La, It's Not Easy, Penelope, Elizabeth, and one of my favourite songs, Rock and Roll, You're Beautiful. I just love that song. But all those great songs led to your huge success and, of course, winning the uh, King of Pop 67, 68. You came back from Vietnam, tried to strike it up again. Now, how did you get to England? I went to England before, obviously, before I was called up. I went in 66 for a year. Uh, and that, that was organised by Ivan Damon. Uh, okay. He put Richie York... Um, whom you may know in your early days in Brisbane, uh, was a, a, a rock and roll scribe. And he was going over and, and Ivan wanted somebody to to look after me because I was still young, you know, yeah. and uh, also to represent me, you know. So I got over there with him and, and we started chasing around record contracts and all that sort of thing. I got a, a contract with Polydor Records and we we went on from there. I was over there in July 66. Right. And by November 67, I'd recorded about five or six songs with players like Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones, um, Clem Catini, who played on 42 UK number one records. So, so they, they were the English wrecking crew, were they? They virtually were, yeah, exactly. 
exactly. Mm. And all the bass players, the guitarists, and people I'd worked with before the Playboys arrived, um, just before Christmas of 67, mm-hmm. they gave me a great understanding of what it was to make a record in the, in a much bigger market that was uh, the UK and uh, uh, the US. Now you toured with the Gene Pitney, the Trogs, Kiki D, and uh, the Spencer Davis group as well. Yeah, I worked with. I, I, I did a fair bit with the new, uh, with the Small Faces too, and uh, uh-huh. and and it was really quite quite funny. I I was in military uniform in '68, and I was walking down the street in Kings Cross, and the Small Faces had been were on tour at the time. You're going to have to beep out an expletive here. So I'm walking down the street. And walking towards me, this this guy, and he looks up at me and he stops and he says, fuck, Normie Rowe, what are you doing dressed like that? Fuck me. <laughs> and it was Steve Marriott. Oh, 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 he was a wild child, wasn't he? But uh, Terrific. And uh, outstanding talent, uh, Stevie, you know, he's, he's wonderful. The whole band was great. And we, we recorded in, uh, we played with them uh, at various uh, ballrooms. In fact, they were on one side of a revolving stage out there playing their stuff, and we were on the other side. And we had to work out between us what their last song was going to be and what our first song was going to be. So, so that when the stage revolved, okay, they were going out on their last song, and we were coming in on our first song, and it was the same song. It was a great way of presenting, I thought. Oh yeah, terrific. that's that's and, incredible. And it was a common thing in in the Locarno ballrooms in uh, in the UK in the day. Okay. Um, and then then we were at the Olympic Studios recording some stuff, and uh, I, I think the producer for that stuff was Mike Hurst, who was also Cat Stevens' producer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were doing, uh, I think it was But I Know, and they were in there recording Little Tin Soldier. Gee. And it was, uh, you know, a great experience. But, uh, of course, our song could have been a number one hit. Yeah. And their song might not have been a number one hit, but it was, you know. Of course, of course, yeah. So we were all doing this stuff, not really knowing how it was going to go, but, uh, you know, we'd walk into each other's studio and, chat to them about equipment and in fact we took over some vase amps uh that were built in brisbane yes uh, stevie said that he thought they were fantastic amplifiers and he wanted to swap his marshals for our vase amps oh fantastic so there was a a big feather in the cap I, i still use vase amps these days i've got I got a pair of them in Melbourne and a pair in on the Gold Coast. Where so I what? Vase amps still in business? Are they? Yes, they are. Wow, that's great. And they also make a, a brilliant PA system, which I use. Yeah, um, I, I I had a I had a vase PA system when I was in the band a long time ago. And jo- and Geloso microphones. Oh dear, yes. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well forgotten. Well forgotten those horrible things. Yes, the cheap ones, mate. Uh, th- from that uh, English recording, uh, two of the biggest songs, "Ooh La La" and "It's Not Easy." Now, for an Australian artist, it was uh, those two songs were in the top three simultaneously for three weeks, which is absolutely outstanding. And when you came back from England, the excitement of you coming back you know, with all the English clothes and everything like that, and then you came back with It's Not Easy. I mean, it just blew everybody's heads off. What a great song. It's a terrific song. But you know something also 
And it's only in hindsight that I recognise this. There are a few clips of the era upon our return of the Playboys and, and myself and the difference between the entity that went over to the UK mm. and in that 12-month period when we came back, the difference was enormous. Yes, it was. The polish and everything. I mean, mm -hmm. I was always a suit wearer. I always wore suits. I, I learned that from Johnny Chester. He always dressed well and Johnny O'Keefe. Mm -hmm. Thorpe, he was the same and Ray Brown, you know, we we – we dressed really well. We had our own tailors and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But when I went to the UK, David Joseph, who became our manager after a while, uh, took me down to Savile Row and all my clothes, all my suits and jackets and trousers and everything, they were all made by a Savile Row tailor. Mm. And, he, and the tailor also gave me a wonderful education on what clothes to be wearing and what what it wasn't a matter of just style or fashion there's a difference between style and fashion mm. fashion doesn't last style always will yes um and uh, and so i i learned that when i came back and you just look at the the grooming of of the the band and myself uh, and the clothes that we were wearing and and it was, uh, and also the way we presented ourselves on stage. It was a really important education for us. Your biggest selling single, Shake It All Over, number one in the charts for 28 weeks. Or, or, or as my granddaughter proudly announced the other day, we watched you on YouTube the other day. And I said, oh, really? What was it? And she, she said, you were singing Chicken All Over. <laughs> Oh, out of the mouths of babes. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> well, it was number one for 28 weeks, selling over 100,000 copies. And back then, that was just unheard of, mate. So congratulations for that. Yeah, it was pretty amazing time, you know. And, and when you consider in those days, not everybody had a, a, an ability to play their personal music. Mm. You know, mm. I mean, my big brother bought the family's first radiogram. You know, we didn't have that beforehand. I think the only music we had was a... a uh, a pianola, a, a roller player piano, and and the radio, mm, mm. or wireless as we called it in those days. Yep, yep. It, it was certainly an interesting period to have kids come up to you and say, I bought all your records. I don't have a record player, but I've got them all, and I'm allowed to take them down to my friend's place to play them. That's what happened back then, Norm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Before I was uh, working regularly as a singer, we had a group of young people, you know, early teens. On a Saturday or a Sunday, we'd go around to each other's place and bring our own favourite records, and we'd play them and dance in the lounge room. Had a record hop. I wanted to use that term, but I didn't think it would translate to, to today's vernacular. <laughs> After all that chart success, of course, you really cleaned up with those great monster shows, Long Way to the Top, the concert tour, and also the Go Show reunion tour. That must have made you feel so good. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. The revelation for me was that I'd spent you know, 25 years working in clubs in Sydney while everybody else was still doing what they did in 1970 uh, in the pubs. Mm -hmm. And I gained a hell of a lot of skills 
not just from the clubs in Sydney, but also from the theatre experiences that I'd had. When the director for the ABC television show of Long Way to the Top came up to me and he said, how do you want to play your part? And I said, well, I want to start up there. I want to be seen up there. I want to go across there. I want to come down the stairs, get down on the apron at the there, do such and such there, and then climb the stairs for the last and finish right up at the top again. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you've just done my work. well you know what to do well that's right you learn these things you know Mm, and mm. and everybody else pretty much was down down on the apron and that that was it yeah but um you know color and movement (laughs) it's brilliant to have all your mates out on stage but the the big thing was backstage catching up with everybody exactly and actually getting to know people that you've known for a long time, but you never really knew them, if you know what I mean, on a personal level, because a ship's in the yeah. night. They'd be at one end of Australia and you'd be on the other end of Australia, you know, and then vice versa. So, mm. but doing mm. the same venues through the 70s and 80s and, uh, you know, Ivan Damon's Magical Mystery Tour was uh, a common phrase, you know, for all the swinger yeah. circuits and all the stuff that Ivan promoted right around the country because he was my first manager too. And so He was ahead of his time, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was. And a lot of people, oh, yeah, but we didn't get paid and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if you put it over a whole 12-month period, you probably earn a lot more in that 12-month period than you might have done if he wasn't around, you know. So you might not have got it paid when something stiff. Exactly right. But that's the way it is. Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, this is Normie Rowe, and you're listening to my good mate, Gavin Wood, and his podcast. Norm, they say in America, if you have two hits over there, you can tour for the rest of your life. Well, you've got... How many how many hits? Over thirty singles and and like a dozen hits, mate. You can tour for the rest of your life. It's like when I when I when I compared your show down here recently, it was it was just like every song's a hit, and it's just great to get up there and perform those babies, huh? Well, it is. Um, I tried really hard. Most artists do to try and leave that behind so you can develop new material and and all that sort of stuff. But after a while, you start to realise that. The people who are important in all this are the people who are sitting out there in the audience and you've got to understand what they like. And one of the one of the things I always say to a, a young songwriter, singer, okay, so you, you want to be an originals writer and singer, that's fine. But do you understand the greatest originals band to ever exist started off doing covers? Who was that? The Beatles. No, they did their own exactly. stuff. Yeah, but you go and go through their first yeah, few but... albums, and <laughs> you'll find, you know, Chuck Berry and uh, a, a lot of yep. Chuck, you know, yep. and a lot of other. Yeah, um, and and uh, what you have to do is you catch your new music in amongst familiar stuff that perhaps you do in your style. So the people are familiar with the songs, with the melody yeah. line and ge- the general run of the song, uh, but it, you do it in your style so that when your song comes along, it matches the style of the stuff that is familiar to the audience and then they've got something familiar to lock onto. 
And you're still touring. You're still touring all over Australia. You, you'll never stop. You're like the little dynamo bunny. You just keep going. <laughs> I am like, like, like the, the, the little Duracell bunny, aren't I? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's great. I mean, look, look at your drummer. He's 80. Yeah, Trotter just amazes everybody. He's fantastic. And I don't know what I'd do yeah. without him. I mean, you know, Jason Vorher, bass player extraordinaire, once made the statement. He said, I love playing with Trotter because I usually play with people who play the drums, but Trotter plays the songs. Yes, yeah. He's got a great feel, great feel. And, and mm. Russell Morris's drummer, Johnny Creech, is, is yes. exactly like that too. I, was, I had lunch with Russell the other day, and we were talking about this. He said, I don't know what I'd do without Creechy. He's, he's, he's wonderful. And I said, he sure is. <laughs> and, be, yeah. and be careful because <laughs> Trotter, <laughs> Trotter might decide to go on – become re- uh, on the retirement uh, thing soon. I, I don't think know. he's allowed to he's, – he's not allowed to do that. You know no, that. No, 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 no. Now, the real, the real happy thing now at the end of this conversation with this podcast, Normie, is that you've just recently got engaged. Yes. Well, <laughs> there's a trick of life, isn't oh, it? Oh, mate, I'm happy for you. You know, I mean – it's brilliant. Samantha and I, we started seeing each other seven years ago, and it's and it's turned into an, an incredible friendship, love, if you like. It, but it's more than that now. Mm. And um, it, it's just one of those things that uh, that you, um, I don't know, it just came along at, at the right time. Mm. Uh, mm. Sam's dad was Kevin Dennis, you know, Den- Dennis Gowing. Yes. From, Oh, um, oh well, you would you would have bounced her on your knee back then. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, my kids said they we love we love Samantha. Don't you stuff this one up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and guess what we're all saying, Norm. <laughs> Don't you stuff this one up. <laughs> She's a very lovable lady, and everybody does uh, make the same statement. It's it's quite wonderful. Well, mate, we're all very happy for you. We're, we're happy for the journey that you've taken. Thanks very now, much. Now, I'm going to ask you a few questions without notice. What have you learnt over your musical journey? To understand that the people who keep you doing or proceeding in that journey are the people out there in the audience, and you must spend your time understanding what they want and what they like and give it to them new every time. Now, if you could have three dinner guests, dead or alive, who would they be? Paul McCartney, Ray Charles, and um, I think Don Kirshner. Oh, yes. Whom I think was probably responsible for a huge amount of the contemporary music of the 1950s, 60s. Mm, mm, absolutely. What a great dinner table. Love to be a fly on the wall there. Now, now, final question. What's the most trouble you've ever gotten into? God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's come straight out of the mouth of a Northcote boy. <laughs> it's hard to pull out one particular thing, I suppose. I think coming off the end of the Eastern Freeway, still doing 120 kilometres an hour, and the cop pulls me up and says, oh, you've got the same birthday as me. How come I didn't go to Vietnam? Yes, <laughs> yes. That's the story, isn't it? Yeah, I, I ended up without a licence for six months, and I actually found that it was quite, quite refreshing to be travelling 
you know, on public transport around the place. And, uh, you know, it's uh, cars are wonderful, but they're not everything. Yeah. Hey, a quick one before you go. What's the best show that you've ever done? The final appearance in uh, in Sydney in Les Miserables. Magnificent. And you did such a brilliant job. The uh, reviews that you got were outstanding, mate. Job well done. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Normie Rowe, what a career. You've always been at the centre of Australian music, and we all love you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much, Gav. I look forward to seeing you when I'm down in Melbourne soon. Gavin Wood's podcast was thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.